Welcome to Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Today, we'll talk about investing through a recession. But first, I want to remind you that the Morningstar Investment Conference will be held virtually this year on September 16th and 17th. Morningstar is offering the same research, analysis, and insight for investment professionals you'd get at the live event, but for the reduced price of $149. And the best part is you can join us from wherever you are. For more information or to register, visit go.morningstar.com forward slash MIC. Again, the website is go.morningstar.com forward slash MIC. This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Global stock markets this year have gone through a dramatic sell-off and recovery in record time. Perhaps more importantly, we've seen a significant decline in economic activity since February, likely marking the onset of a recession, a recession being defined as two consecutive quarters of contraction or negative growth as measured by a country's gross domestic product or GDP. So we're going to look at past recessions and compare them with the current environment. We'll consider what past market recoveries have looked like and discuss how our investment team at Morningstar Investment Management is considering these lessons from the past to uncover potential long-term opportunities today. The speaker's audio comes from a recent webcast we hosted, and they discussed some slides. We'll post those slides in the notes section of this episode, or you can get a copy by emailing simple at morningstar.com. I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast Daniel Needham, who's president and global chief investment officer, and Philip Strale, head of capital markets and asset allocation in the Americas at Morningstar Investment Management. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Uh, Philip, let's start by looking at how we got here. Could you give a brief summary of the crisis so far in 2020? Absolutely. And we've really been dealing with an unprecedented uh, economic event here, a global pandemic, which started in China, uh, later spread to Western Europe, um, and then ultimately to the United States, which uh, led to uh, what is sometimes sometimes referred to as a sudden stop of economic activity as governments implemented lockdown measures uh, to halt the spread of the virus. Uh, by some estimates, the global economy shrunk by 16% between mid-January and mid-February and, and mid-April uh, over, that, over that time frame as both demand uh, as well as supply of the economy was impacted. Uh, consumers could no longer go out and, uh, and buy uh, goods and services, uh, and firms uh, in some cases couldn't produce uh, goods and services either because of uh, concerns around the, the virus spread. Um, we have uh, now controlled the virus in, in many parts of the world. China, the numbers are uh, under control as well as uh, in Western Europe, uh, but um, there's still uh, pretty high daily average cases in the United States, which uh, creates some, create some uncertainty around the path of recovery uh, that we might see from here. Policymakers were quite aggressive in uh, responding to this crisis starting in March. Uh, we've seen unprecedented uh, responses from both uh, the Federal Reserve as well as the, uh, the government itself. 
which have, has helped ease financial conditions. Um, while the, the path to, to normality is still uncertain, uh, what we're hoping to achieve today is provide you with some perspective in terms of uh, what's unique uh, about that crisis today and um, how that might inform uh, how, we, how, how to invest throughout this, uh, this market cycle. Thanks, Philip. I think that's a good setup for our current environment. But of course, investing is all about the future. We don't pretend to have a crystal ball, but one way to deal with an unknowable future is to look at the probability of future outcomes based on past events. By that, I mean we consider what's typically happened in the past. So you might see this in a televised baseball game, right, where on the screen they show some situational statistics like, you know, the chance of a batter getting a hit with a certain count and with runners on base or how often a particular team tends to score in certain scenarios. So, Daniel, how should investors think about recessions with this kind of probabilistic mindset? Yeah, I think if you look at the long stretch of history, and as you'll see with this, uh, the chart that we've got here, um, shows the, uh, the long-term um, uh, growth for the uh, U.S. economy. Uh, so this is sort of rolling uh, annual growth uh, adjusted for inflation uh, back to, to 1800. And the first thing you can note is that growth is relatively inconsistent. So, you know, it varies a lot from year to year and it can be very high or very low, but but over the long term, it's, it's definitely been positive, and that's reflected in the fact that the U.S. economy has really continued to expand over the last two centuries. Um, but as I mentioned, it's not a straight line, and so uh, recessions are quite common in um, in economies, and, and certainly in the U.S. And so, if you're somebody thinking, well, how often should I expect to see a recession? If you go back to sort of uh, you know about 1845, uh, sorry, 1854, the recessions have occurred once every roughly five years. Since World War II, so since 1945, they've actually been less frequent at around once every, say, six and a quarter years. And so you should be aware, obviously, of the floor of averages that just because uh, an average, uh, there's a particular average doesn't mean that it's going to be what's going to happen every time. You can have a much higher number and a much lower number. So what we've seen historically in the US since World War II is that it can be sometimes 10 years between recessions, or it can be sometimes as short as less than two years. Um, and so there's an element of uncertainty around when they occur. But if you're an investor that's been investing for more than a decade, it's highly likely that you'll be investing uh, through a, a recession. And um, what we can see, uh, you know, there's a lot in the chart. It shows that there's a lot of recessions that have occurred. They've also occurred over, over a period where um, stock markets have performed really well. So if we, we often show the charts sort of the long-term cumulative growth of investing a dollar in, in the US stock market. Well, well that occurred during all of these recessions. So over the long term, equities have delivered returns despite um, these recessions. Um, now, one thing that we've seen since World War II, which is important, is that generally um, uh, the recessions have occurred uh, less frequently, but the recoveries have taken longer. So if we look at the um, uh, if we look at the, the chart here, we can see that the average contraction has generally been around 11 months. And when we look at how long it takes to recover, Generally, it's a factor of two to three times more. So what we've seen post-World War II is that the recoveries are a little slower than what we'd seen previously, and the recessions are less frequent. Um, but there's often different recessions, uh, uh, sort of uh, different causes of recessions lead to different recoveries. So what we find is that if there's a financial crisis, like in 2008, the recession uh, actually tends to be worse, uh, and the recovery tends to be slower. If you have a, a recession 
that is, isn't caused by a financial crisis or a financial crisis doesn't occur during the recession, then what tends to happen is that the recovery can be faster um, and, uh, and the re recession less severe. Now, this is a unique uh, kind of uh, economic recession, as Philip mentioned. Um, and so now we've had, you know, uh, this is our 12th cycle since World War II. And, and I think that, um, that this economic recession and potentially the recovery could look quite different uh, to some of the, the ones that we'd seen previously. Um, and so, uh, and we'll be touching a bit on that. Saying this time is different can be dangerous for investors, right? Uh, the details are always somewhat different from one crisis to another, but there's danger in ignoring what's typically happened as well. So, Philip, how has this recession been similar to past ones? And what are some of its unique attributes? So, as I mentioned before, it was really the unique feature of the, the current recession um, is the fact that it, that it is policy-induced. If we want to go to slide six, um, we can look at, you know, the impact um, that, uh, you know, this crisis had on the left-hand side compared to the previous crisis uh, of the global financial crisis of uh, 2008 and 9. So the yellow line there shows sort of the expected impact on uh, growth uh, of this, uh, the, this current downturn compared with uh, the impact of the, the global financial crisis of 2008 and 9. You can see that uh, you know, both in terms of the, the magnitude of the downturn, um, as well as the, uh, you know, the duration, we expect that to be uh, more severe this time. And also, just given the nature of uh, it being a policy-induced um, recession, um, we, see, we saw a very fast and sharp um, shutdown of economic activity, and subsequently, uh, sort of a pretty fast recovery. So we've seen uh, the first quarter growth was roughly flat uh, by some expectations. Uh, the second quarter growth is probably going to be about negative uh, 10% on an on an annualized basis. And then from there, we'll see uh, growth again as economies are opening back up again. So if you look at the, uh, the chart on the right-hand side, this is looking at some um, expected uh, economic impacts across different countries. And I mentioned sort of the different uh, phases of, of impact across the world with China being impacted initially. Uh, so that impact was very sharp uh, initially on an annualized basis. We can see that that impact was 25%. Uh, but then as the economy uh, started opening again, uh, growth returned. And actually China today reported uh, that they grew again in the, uh, in the second quarter of, uh, of 2020, which is the first economy to uh, return back to growth. Uh, so the fact that this was a policy-induced um, recession uh, creates a unique uh, pattern of growth with uh, a very sharp decline. And ultimately, as the economy opens up again, we can see uh, the growth rate returning from there. Usually, uh, recessions tend to be uh, linked to uh, central bank policy interest rates, uh, with, which ultimately impact uh, the credit market and, and the lending uh, in the credit market and being able to uh, induce uh, companies and, and customers again to go out and spend tends to be quite challenging uh, and it tends to t take a, a bit longer, as we can see on the left-hand side there. With the, um, with the blue line, it was a pretty drawn-out uh, recovery uh, during the global financial crisis. Uh, today, as consumers are allowed back into the stores um, and companies are producing again, uh, we're dealing with, with a different type of economic uh, downturn. 
Uh, we just have to make sure that this is not turning into a financial crisis, uh, which will be more challenging to, um, to deal with. But we'll be speaking about some of the specific policy responses that people have uh, enacted uh, later on. Um, maybe if we move to uh, the next slide um, as well, I want to briefly touch on the, the labor market, which has been also a focal point of uh, this economic downturn. So if you look at the green line, you can see the initial claims for unemployment benefits. And uh, this is for the current economic downturn, contrasting that again to the previous um, global recession or uh, financial crisis of 2008 and 9. And you can see that really that, that speed of the, the increases very quick as that economic activity was shut down. Uh, that actually, those initial uh, claims uh, peaked at, at about 7 um, million uh, and subsequently uh, have come down closer to 1 million. Uh, you can see that during the um, global financial crisis of 2008 and 9, uh, that, that path was much more steady, was much more drawn out. And actually the numbers uh, themselves were much lower uh, with the peak there in the top chart not reached, uh, not exceeding 700,000. Yeah, the U.S. government and the Fed both responded very quickly to this pandemic, as did treasuries and central banks in other countries. Daniel, how have these monetary and fiscal policy moves shaped this crisis? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I'll talk a bit about the, um, the monetary, and I'll, I'll pass over to Phil to talk about some of the fiscal uh, policy. But, I mean, I it's fair to say that it's the most extreme uh, response that we've seen from governments uh, in a short period of time. And, you know, this, the, the response that we've seen, you know, sort of more broadly from the government is kind of akin to what we saw in World War II versus any of the other events that we've seen since, including the global financial crisis. I mean, effectively, we had government responses in, you know, in, in March, significant responses in March, when you consider that really the pandemic uh, data really started to come out in February towards the end of February. So the response was, was, was quick and, uh, and very meaningful. And so if we look at the next slide, um, uh, what we can see here is um, effectively it's a, the monetary policy response. Um, so when, when we think about, if we can categorize the main ways that central banks can respond, effectively um, they can set interest rates so they can increase and decrease interest rates. Um, they can buy investments in the market, so balance sheet activities, so they can buy assets in the market, uh, in the secondary market. They can set forward guidance on um, effectively what they, they get, what they say they'll do in the future with interest rates. And then they can also um, effectively lend directly to market participants in a sort of a lender of last resort type um, activity. They also provide funding. Um, so for example, the Federal Reserve provides funding to other central banks around the world. Uh, through swap lines. And so what we've seen effectively uh, in this e crisis is the, the Fed has done it all effectively in a really short period of time. Um, but this chart really highlights, you know, we've seen, um, so the blue line shows how much interest rates have been cut uh, or eased uh, since January 2020. Um, so what you'll see is that everywhere around the world where it's, uh, where, where it's been possible to cut nominal rates, they've been cut. Um, but interestingly, relative to the average or the typical drawdown in history, what we've seen is that the, the rate cuts are significantly below, um, uh, are significantly below what has happened his, historically. And, and that, that reflects the fact that interest rates are very low around the world 
uh, at really secular lows coming into this event. So there wasn't much room for central banks to cut interest rates. And so what we saw was that they actually stepped into what are called unconventional sort of policy tools very quickly. And during the financial crisis, the central banks around the world, especially the Fed, really developed a toolkit of uh, unconventional policies to respond to a financial crisis and uh, effectively an extreme economic shock. And so they were able to go to that playbook very quickly. And so if we move to the next slide, um, this gives you a sense of how much uh, the balance sheets uh, of central banks have changed um, in relative to sort of GDP. So, so for example, the Fed there, uh, the, um, the expectation from Goldman Sachs is that the Fed's uh, balance sheet will expand, expand about 17% in 2020 uh, as they go into the market. So why, would the, 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 why is the balance sheet of the central bank expanding uh, a monetary policy activity? Primarily because the central bank is able to go in and buy uh, financial instruments, normally government bonds, but also some corporate instruments, um, often uh, agency-backed uh, mortgage securities in the US, but they buy them from a market participant. And so they exchange uh, uh, banking reserves for those assets. And what that does, uh, it, and, and certainly based off the research from the Bank of International Settlements, is it drives interest rates down. And so it's another monetary policy tool. So the central bank, if they can't ease with interest rates, they can effectively buy assets in the market and push interest rates down further. And that's what they've done, especially in, in the treasury market uh, in the US. And so the central bank has stepped in, but probably more important than the quantitative easing. Uh, because that's really just switching one instrument for another. What's been more important has been the fact that they've stepped in to lend directly to companies. Uh, so through Main Street lending programs, effectively also stepping in uh, to buy uh, primary issuance. from. So when companies are issuing bonds, the central bank is effectively buying those directly, as well as um, buying in the secondary market. Now, they haven't had to do a lot of buying of those things. And that's because when the central bank says they can buy something, it means that market participants will start to set prices based off the expectation that they will buy at that price. And so through that, that process of forward guidance and, and, um, and, and direct lending and direct purchases, they've been able to stabilise the markets, prevent interest rates from rising, bring credit spreads down, significantly reduce the risk that companies wouldn't have been able to refinance themselves. And they also provided uh, US dollar lines to central banks around the world. So there was a shortage of US dollars. And so the Fed was able to provide all that liquidity. And so all that access to US dollars. And so what we've seen is an extraordinary response. And I think that, you know, at least partly explains why we may see a different economic outcome uh, this time than in previous uh, economic recessions. But the fiscal levers are the ones that I think are arguably the most interesting. Good segue. Um So maybe I'll just expand on uh, you know how the fiscal uh, side of things uh, impacted things this time around. I think as Daniel mentioned, going into this crisis, we had uh, very loose um, you know monetary policy by historical standards. So uh, the onus uh, to stimulate was in many cases on individual governments. So if you go to the next slide, I just want to kick things off with a bit of a historical perspective. This data is not totally up to date in terms of the, the final 2020 bar, but I did want to show it because it highlights uh, the policy actions in historical context. So this is looking at um, the fiscal policy, uh, you know, fiscal policy balances or fiscal balances uh, going back to 2006. 
uh, and sort of contrasting the uh, the fiscal response during this crisis compared to what we've seen during the global financial crisis again. And we can see that even with data, um, as of the end of March, uh, the, the, these uh, fiscal policy actions have exceeded what we had seen uh, during the global financial crisis in a single calendar year. If we look, go to the next slide then and look at uh, a bit more updated data, we can then look at um, the, uh, the stimulus uh, in terms of what has been enacted, uh, as well as what's expected to be enacted in 2020 across uh, a number of key regions and, and markets. And um, I just want to call out the United States where uh, there's an expectation that um, the fiscal stimulus will be in the order of roughly 19% of GDP, which significantly exceeds uh, some of the other markets. We can see numbers closer to 10% in the Eurozone and the UK and roughly 14, 15% across the developed, uh, the, the developed world. Um, also want to point out some differences in terms of how that stimulus um, has reached or has been implemented. Uh, in the United States, there's really been a number of different forms of, of stimulus. Um, one of them was, was tax rebate, rebates or payments directly to individuals. Um, there was unemployment insurance that was enact, enacted. Uh, there was direct lending and grants to uh, particular industries, such as airlines. Uh, we've also seen loans uh, to small businesses that are uh, forgivable in some cases, uh, and also credit facilities uh, for corporations and uh, state and local governments. So uh, a really significant response, particularly in the U.S. Uh, one thing to call out and keep in mind is that uh, there tend to be more uh, what is called automatic stabilizers outside of the U.S. These are Oftentimes, um, programs where um, individuals can stay employed and they can request, uh, companies can request aid uh, to keep those employees employed. Uh, such a, a scheme, uh, for example, in Germany is called Kurzarbeit. And you can see, if you look at that middle bar, uh, the proportion of automatic stabilizers in uh, the euro area is actually the majority of stimulus that we're seeing. Uh, in that area. So uh, the fiscal response was was quite significant, and it was also important just because of the nature uh, of this crisis, which originated in the real economy this time. It was not a financial crisis uh, like it was in, the, in 2008 and nine, where really the banking system had to be propped up. In this particular case, uh, it was about uh, making sure that consumers and companies could uh, continue to, uh, to spend um, and keep their activity going. Well, that gives us a pretty thorough look at what's happened in the economy and how different governments have reacted. Let's switch gears and talk about how the economy has affected markets, stocks in particular. Uh, Daniel, historically, how have stocks responded to a global recession? And, and how has this crisis been different? Yeah, I, I think um, maybe we can bring the, the next slide up. But, um, but generally, you know, during an economic recession, equity markets fall. So, so uh, equity returns are negative. And so what we have here is uh, looking at across 21 equity markets from 1970 uh, to um, to 2016, we analysed how different uh, equity markets performed uh, during recessions. Uh, so we look at sort of uh, on a quarterly basis. So um, zero is effectively uh, when the recessions occurred. Uh, minus one is the quarter before. Plus one is the quarter after, and, and on on it goes. And so. Um, what you can see is historically equity, uh, equity markets have uh, contracted over the uh, year after an economic recession has started. And so you can see a global recession 
uh, is the kind of the, the point there, uh, the historical global recession is around 25% um, after a year. Uh, and then the financial crisis, which we, we, Philip and I have both mentioned, when there's a financial crisis, uh, generally the economic contraction is deeper and it's harder to get out of, and therefore generally equities fall more in those environments. And so uh, what we can see is that the initial contraction uh, was quite severe. So when the recession occurred, this, the blue line shows the S&P 500 total return. And so we, we saw at the end of uh, March, the S&P 500 was down sort of just under 20%. Uh, it actually broke 20% uh, during uh, the month of March, um, but, but ended slightly, slightly above 20% down. And then the minus 3.1% is, is where the uh, S&P 500 finished relative to uh, the, um, the end of 2019. So, so at the end of June for the year, the S&P 500 was down about 3.1%. So you can see relative to history, um, uh, the contraction was deeper and faster in the first quarter, but we've seen at least temporarily a recovery almost back up to the previous highs for the S&P 500. And so this is what you're going to hear lots of questions about in the press and uh, and in the industry, you know, this stock markets don't make sense given we're in an economic recession and people are kind of using these types of paths or base rates to sort of make those statements. There's, this is a very unique environment and the S&P 500 is actually a really unique uh, index at the moment to, to, to use as a barometer for how stocks are reflecting uh, the performance of the economy. So if we move on to the next slide, um, it's looking at things on a uh, similar basis. So. Uh, there's a few more indexes on, on here, but uh, the yellow line is the S&P 500. So it's effectively looking at the same period that I used in the previous slide. So that is from the 31st of December, 2019 through to the 30th of June, 2020. And what you can see is that the S&P 500 is actually at about $90, $97, so down about three, uh, $3, $3 relative to starting with $100. Um, and so what we've seen is that really the main uh, uh, the, the best performers in this environment have been the NASDAQ index and the uh, large growth index. Whereas if you look at, say, US small value, the red line, you can see that it's still down, you know, at the end of June was down roughly 30%. Uh, and, uh, and, and global markets have, have generally fared worse than the US market. But what we've seen in the, in the S&P 500 specifically is um, it's, it's a market that's been dominated by large uh, growth technology-oriented businesses. So businesses that have, you know, benefited, they've got internet-related business models, they've done well in a work-from-home environment, that is, there's more demand for their services uh, during the, the response to this unique crisis. They've got global revenues, strong balance sheets, and generally, uh, the, the more defensive companies have done better. So the S&P 500 has effectively been dominated by those businesses. And so if we look, move on to the next chart, what we can see is that... Um, just five, um, so uh, just five companies really uh, in 2020, effectively as at the end of June 2020, represent nearly 20 over 20 percent uh, of the S&P 500. So just five stocks, and so those stocks have really benefited generally from all those things that I mentioned. Um, and so the S&P 500 has recovered, but be, partly because of the concentration of stocks that have actually done really well in this economic environment, which means that the S&P 500 is performing a little differently than you would expect in a, in a normal economic recession. Uh, but when you strip out the, these sort of large growth businesses, what you see is that um, small value or those, those other parts of the market have performed in a consistent way. 
Yeah, it's amazing to think about the market share of a handful of companies and, and how they've grown. Uh, Philip, looking historically, what types of assets tend to perform well coming out of a recession? That's great. So what we've done, uh, if you go to the next slide, please, um, we've looked at all the global recessions that we've seen in the data set going back to 1960, and we looked at how uh, certain how the market itself uh, and certain segments of the market have performed after that global recession. So uh, what you're looking at here on the on the left hand side, we look at sort of one year returns. Uh, so the average returns, if you look at average returns for the market overall, that was about 11.5% uh, on average. Uh, and then if you look at uh, what happened one year after a global recession, generally um, those returns were significantly higher. So it was roughly 20% uh, return in a post-global uh, uh, recession environment. Uh, also, if you look at some of the, uh, the factor returns, so there's a value factor, which is overweighting uh, companies that trade at cheaper uh, multiples, such as the, the price to book ratio compared to uh, the higher price to book companies, we can see that value companies generally do uh, do better. So the, the value factor returned uh, about 10% one year after a recession compared to uh, just 4% on average. And similarly, um, uh, with, with small cap uh, companies, which tend to be more cyclical, the average return of small caps is about 2%. And one year after a global recession, uh, we've seen a return of 11.5% coming out of um, a global recession. So generally, uh, you know, one year post the event, we see uh, the market recover. Uh, the market overall recovers well in particular areas like uh, value and, and small caps uh, recover. We can also look at the market from a, from a different lens. If you look at um, the market through the lens of um, sectors, on the next slide, uh, just uh, doing that same analysis, um, we can see that generally companies uh, that tend to be a bit more cyclical. Uh, so we have sort of the consumer uh, durable companies. These are uh, auto manufacturers, uh, TV, kind of industrial type companies. Uh, usually uh, the return of the full sample going back to 1960, that was about 11% coming out of a global recession. That was uh, the average return was 35%. Same thing with manufacturing, another cyclical area. Uh, that return over the full sample was 11.6%, uh, and coming out of the global recession, that was 25%. And then uh, also energy, which is an area that we like, uh, has done quite well, posting a 20% return coming out of uh, a global recession uh, historically. So generally, the theme is that more cyclical uh, companies, value companies, do better coming out of the global recession compared to more defensive companies like healthcare, utilities, um, telcos, um, based off of this analysis. And finally, um, if we go to the, to, to the next slide, looking at uh, what happened after bear markets. So on the, on the next slide, we're now not looking at global recession specifically, but just uh, generally downturns in, um, in equity prices. There were six of them going back to the uh, stock market crash of uh, 1987. Um, and this is the performance of a 60-40 multi-asset uh, portfolio. And what's encouraging here is that three years after a bear market, generally uh, that multi-asset portfolio posted double-digit double returns. Uh, the exception there was the dot-com bubble, uh, which was not really a, uh, an economic crisis like the one we're facing today. It was mainly uh, a crash of a, uh, of a stock market bubble. 
Uh, so we would uh, put that in a slightly different category. That's certainly good news for valuation-driven investors like us. As Warren Buffett has said, we, we like to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Daniel, given all that we've discussed about so far, can you talk about how the investment team has navigated this crisis and how our portfolios are currently positioned? You know, I'll, I'll speak more broadly and then pass over to Philip to talk about some of the specifics. But, um, you know, as long-term valuation-driven investors, by nature, we're, we're contrarian. And so when we see uh, extreme pessimism um, and, uh, and fear in markets, we're more likely to kind of exhibit the opposite. That is, uh, we'll be more optimistic uh, and, uh, and more greedy uh, because we see effectively during periods of pessimism and fear, prices tend to fall a lot. And, and therefore, from our perspective, buying things after they've fallen a lot means prospective returns will be higher and vice versa. When people are really optimistic and everybody feels uh, greedy, they're going to be the times when we're going to be more defensive uh, and, and, and less aggressively positioned. And so what we saw... In, uh, in March uh, and, uh, and, and April uh, was really attractive prices. Uh, we saw extreme falls in markets uh, and, uh, and we stepped in to, uh, to take advantage of those. Um, and so we have a long-term view. So we're not going to look at making money in, in the next month or six months or a year. Uh, and so if you take a longer-term view in those environments and you do your analysis, you can see attractive you know, three- to five-year returns available. And so um, the Fed stepping in and Treasury responding so significantly meant that the opportunities that one would normally see with this kind of extreme uh, contraction didn't happen, which is a good thing for, for the economy, but we were still able to sort of take advantage of those opportunities. And, and we were definitely risk uh, takers uh, as markets were falling, as things got more attractive uh, relative to maybe how we were positioned a year ago. Uh, so maybe I'll hand over to, to Philip to talk more about the specifics. Sure, if we could uh, pull up the, the slide, we can talk specifically uh, about how we've generally uh, positioned our portfolios throughout uh, this downturn. So going into the, uh, this downturn, we were generally uh, underweight stocks. Um, we were overweight international assets, but also overweight value uh, assets. So. As we've seen um, asset price decline, uh, what we tend to do uh, initially is to rebalance, bring us back to, uh, to target. And as um, equity prices continued to decline in mid uh, to, to late March, we started uh, buying some of the more uh, beaten down areas, specifically uh, global energy, which was uh, trading down significantly, uh, investing in more economically sensitive areas such as small caps. Uh, but also within credit markets, credit spreads were, were quite wide uh, in high yield as well as emerging market debt. So we've increased our risk uh, positioning in that, uh, in that area and have continued uh, to then later in, uh, in April to, to add risk uh, to the portfolio in, in the corporate bond market. But as, as uh, the market continued to rally, uh, we uh, sold uh, some equity uh, either through adjustments in the targets uh, but also through rebalancing uh, our portfolios. And if you look at our portfolio today, uh, some of the key themes I would point to, uh, we, we really think that uh, both financials, uh, banks, uh, as well as uh, sort of integrated energy companies look attractive to us. Uh, we think the banking system uh, is much better capitalized than during the, the previous uh, economic downturn of 2008 and 9. Uh, we think that uh, these banks will be able to, uh, to weather even a severe uh, economic downturn without needing uh, additional capital. 
And then within energy, uh, what tends to happen is that companies or energy companies respond by cutting capital expenditures. And through cutting capital expenditures, that ultimately reduces uh, the supply in the market, creates a rebalancing of, of oil prices. And uh, generally, lower oil prices also enforce better capital allocation discipline. Uh, which tends to sow the seed for uh, for higher future profitability. Um, we also like some of the more cyclical areas, uh, the spe- specific uh, positions that we have in, in places like South Korea and Germany uh, and Mexico. Uh, these are um, uh, areas that are that are exposed to trade and uh, potential recovery and, uh, and economic activity. Uh, with that being said, um, as I mentioned, as uh, we've seen the, the market rebound this very quickly, during the second quarter, we have uh, taken on a slightly more uh, defensive posture and have rebalanced back to our targets and sold risk in, in some cases. That's all the time we have today. Daniel and Philip, thank you for being here and thank you for listening. If you enjoy Simple But Not Easy, please take a moment today to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. And if you want to get in touch or need the slides from today's episode, please send us an email at simple at morningstar.com. I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.